thing that's built into the cell. And I stood up on there to get to a window that was high up, a little small window, just to look out at the night sky. And I could see the stars and, and, and something just came over me. And I got back down and sat back on the bunk. And, and I was just flooded with this feeling and this sort of peace and confidence. And I just made it a real, it was a, it was a decision that kind of happened in me uh, to never give up. Welcome to the Prime Life Project Podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Life Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James, and today, oh, you are in for an absolute treat. Now, this gentleman that I've got on today, Dr. Fleet Moll, I promise you that you're going to take some incredible value from this guy's knowledge. This can be one of those episodes where you're going to want to listen back to it time and time again. I can promise you that already. So all I ask is if you take any value from today's episode, please like and share it with a friend, either ping it over to them, uh, put it on Instagram, give us a tag, just help us to spread the word to help as many people as possible. Uh, This guy's story is truly inspiring and some of the stuff he's been through, uh, I promise you it will help change your life. So the gentleman I've got today, as I mentioned, is Dr. Fleet Moll, who founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and the National Prisoner Hospice Association, catalyzing two US national movements while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum drug federal sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Moll developed the radical responsibility empowerment model that embraces 100% ownership of each and every circumstance we face, free of blaming oneself and others. He's the author of The Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Our Higher Purpose, and Become Unstoppable Force for the Good in the World. Dr. Moll is also a senior teacher in Zen and Tibetan meditation traditions, an executive coach, social entrepreneur, a creator of the Radical Responsibility Philosophy and Program. Dr. Fleet Moll, welcome to the podcast. Great. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Uh, some of the stuff that you do here, like it's absolutely incredible. And your story, we spoke about this a little bit last time, obviously we had technical uh, issues, so we couldn't actually record the podcast, but it allowed me and you to connect a little bit deeper. And your story is absolutely incredible. So today... If, if we may, I'd like to just start off with what happened before you went to prison, what happened during your prison sentence, and then the incredible work that you're actually doing outside now. And you, you're just an absolutely incredible person. And the book that you wrote, uh, again, I, I highly recommend everyone go and read it because uh, it's not in just a book. The thing I like about it is it's a course. You've literally wrote it to help people. And I absolutely devoured it. Um, so yeah, honestly, really looking forward to today. So let's go all the way back. Can you explain to me how you ended up um, being a well-educated male at 35 years old, but then actually ending up being sentenced to 25 years without parole for drug trafficking? Because that, to me, doesn't seem to make much sense. So can you just explain to me what happened there? Yeah. Well, suffice it to say, I was pretty thick-headed back then, <laughs> um, compartmentalizing my life a lot. Uh, you know, I, I was one of the baby boomer generation. I came of age in the 60s. And uh, graduated from high school in 1968, an incredibly tumultuous year in U.S. history with all the assassinations, the Kent State killings, I mean, just so much going on. And, and I was set up, just, I was already kind of a ang- classic angry young man, big hole in my gut from early childhood stuff and alcoholism in my family. And, and you know, I was just trying to fill that up with anything I could, trying to look for something real, really alienated, you know, and and. So I just went headlong into the counterculture movement of that time. And um, 
but I was always a spiritual seeker at the same time. I was always interested in mind and I'd always been a seeker. And so I had, you know, this kind of uh, from 19, really 66, uh, uh, through the time I, I was locked up, this kind of uh, bifurcated, twisted path that involves spiritual seeking and also being involved in all the craziness of the counterculture, the drug, sex, and rock and roll, and and any war politics and all the rest of it. And uh, I eventually, you know, got so kind of alienated. I left the country really just to uh, when Nixon was reelected to a second term. Um, I, I just couldn't handle being in America anymore. And uh, of course, that was part of my whole us versus them thinking and solidifying and thinking somehow I was, you know, right and they were wrong. It's not to say that there weren't things going on to be upset about. There, of course, were. But uh, at any rate, I ended up traveling in Latin America, both to kind of escape being in the U.S., but also looking for something real and genuine in my life. When I'd grown up early in my childhood, maybe this is true for most people, but I remember my, my, remember my early childhood as uh, being very magical and just feeling really plugged into reality with a sense of awe and magic. And, you know, somewhere around the time of starting school, that kind of disappeared and everything went to gray tones. And again, maybe that's a normal developmental process, but I never made peace with it. And I also think it probably had something to do with the onset of alcoholism in my family and so forth. Um, but at any rate, I, I was always looking to plug back into something real. And of course, you know, thought I was discovering it, you know, and the, and the alcohol, the drugs, the sex and all these things. But and of course, you know, there there is something to some of those things, but they carry with them a lot of baggage, especially if you had a hole in your gut like I did and a propensity towards addiction. And uh, and they all have their shadow side and so forth. And they're kind of really a mirage of, of, of the genuine kind of magic of really plugging into reality. So um, anyway, I was just kind of along that path and uh, living as an expat in South America. And I eventually fell into small-scale drug smoking as a way to just live outside the culture. And I justified that with all this us versus them thinking, right? And, um, you know, actually thought I was the good guys on the right side. There I'm smuggling drugs, and I think I'm the good guys on the right side, right? And, uh, but I'd always been pursuing a path of meditation, and I figured out I was a Buddhist by the time I was like 15 or 16. And, and but I really didn't get the opportunity to pursue that in great depth for quite a while. The area I grew up in, the Midwest of the United States, there wasn't a lot going on around that. So I was reading and studying on my own. And then living in South America, I was meeting people, more like-minded people, but still not a, a lot. And but continuing to study and try and practice on my own. But I knew I needed to connect with a teacher and a, and a genuine, you know, situation to really learn to practice and deepen in practice and. So I, in 1974, I heard about the founding of the then Naropa Institute, now Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, by the great Tibetan meditation master, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I was living way up in a remote valley in the Andes Mountains in Peru. And some travelers found their way up to our place, which travelers often did. And, and they had a copy of Rolling Stone magazine from 1974, and I believe the fall of 1974, and it had a big feature story about the first summer sessions at Naropa, which is this huge spiritual happening. About 1,500 people showed up and all these seminal figures like Allen Ginsberg and, and um, uh, uh, Buckminster Fuller were there, as well as Trungpa Rinpoche and, and, and Ram Dass and William Burroughs and, and uh, all, kind of, all the avant-garde theater and poetry people, and as well as spiritually. It was just kind of this huge happening. 
But what I really zeroed in on was my teacher's name, Chogun Krumpur Mache, and I saw it. And I just knew I had to go there. I'd already zeroed in on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There were only four or five books published from that tradition at that time, and they weren't the greatest translations, but that's what I was studying. And I saw his name and something just grabbed me by the throat. I knew I had to go there. So I managed to get up to the States and enroll there, and I got my master's degree in it was then called a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology. It was a very unique three-year clinical training program, training psychotherapists to work with people experiencing extreme states, psychosis, schizophrenia, and so forth, mm. and a very deep program. And today it's called a master's in contemplative psychotherapy. And so uh, I did that. And, but I, you know, quite frankly, I paid for my dad. I, I put myself through school with being a part-time drug smuggler. I would disappear once or twice a year, go do a run in South America, and I could still live outside the system and do what I was doing. Also, my marriage was falling apart, you know, because of my crazy life. And and um, uh, I was keeping those problems at bay with money. And uh, before I could untangle that whole mess, I knew, I, I really knew, you know, that this had to change. And and I, I was experiencing this huge cognitive dissonance between the Buddhist life I was pursuing and the training I was pursuing and the professional training and 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 the path of meditation and this craziness of being involved in drugs and being involved in smuggling, but I was just self-medicating around that dissidence. And I spent about half the life, half the year, you know, traveling with my teacher around retreats where I was in living this very sane life and diving very deep into these practices. And then the other half of the year being this kind of crazy cocaine cowboy, smuggler, crazy person. And um, at any rate, before I could untangle those two. Uh, I managed to earn my way into a, a federal prison sentence, and I was indicted in 1985. I'd quit several years, about two years before that, and uh, but other people had continued and you know gotten in trouble and decided to invite me along to the party. So I was indicted, and then I had to decide whether to try to go on the run or or stay and face it. I knew I was going to be indicted actually before I was indicted, and and uh, I I put that to my teacher. Uh, who was up in Canada at the time, but I got a message to him and and he spent a few days with it. And then a message came back. You need to stay and face it. He said, uh, you know, on the run, it would be very hard to consider your path uh, of, as a Dharma practitioner or as my student. But even if they lock you up for a long time, you can still practice. And so that was really the first time I took anybody's advice in my entire life. But I did. and I never regretted it. I turned myself in. And um I was originally sentenced to 30 years with no parole, the so-called kingpin statute. I, I don't, to this day, I don't believe I was a kingpin or guilty of that statute, <laughs> but I was certainly guilty of smuggling. And if that's all they charged me with, I would have just pled guilty and put myself at the mercy of the court. But at any rate, I didn't testify against anyone. That went against my principles. I couldn't see somebody else doing my time or some other family suffering instead of me. That just went against who I was and my Buddhist principles. So because I was the one who didn't testify, I was became the kingpin, and I ended up doing a lot of people's time. But um, yeah, so so that's how I ended up there. Uh, I am pretty much speechless. I um, yeah, you, you've blown me away with that. I, there's so many things to to, to, to unpick there. Um, how did you did your teacher at the time know what was going on, or was this completely new to him when you no, reached I kept out? This I kept this all secret from him. And then when I, when I basically, I, I had almost been busted um, uh, in 1983, a, a, a smuggling went bad and, and I managed to escape from some islands and get back to the States. And at that point, I kind of knew the jig was up. I knew I would, uh, others had uh, 
been caught. And I, I figured probably sooner or later, they're going to be on to me. And uh, so that's when I finally disclosed it to my teacher. And he said, well, you've created a pretty complicated karmic mess for yourself. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, he said, well, you know, obviously leave that behind and focus on your practice, which I did uh, and wait and see. But then when I wasn't dieted, then I put it to him, what should I do? And, uh, but no, I had kept this as kind of a secret life from my spiritual teacher and my community all those years. And I had this completely two different worlds that I lived in, right? That mm -hmm. where I was becoming more and more public as a Buddhist practitioner and trained as a Buddhist teacher and, you know, becoming a professional. And, and then I had this other completely secret life. It was really a crazy way to live, but that's, did you feel a that's, sense of that's, that was the deal? <laughs> did you feel a sense of relief when you got caught? As bizarre as that sounds, when it all came out to the surface, did did you feel a sense of relief that now your double life was almost over and it allowed you to actually leave something behind? Mm -hmm. Although it ended yeah. quite abruptly. Yeah, you know, people sometimes say that. Um, no, that wasn't my experience. <laughs> um, actually, that didn't happen until later on in prison. Um, initially, no, I was, I was pretty freaked out and you know they were threatening to put me away for a long time and and you know i'd seen enough prison movies to you know i have i was having nightmares and you know i was really concerned and uh uh you know i still had a lot of internal justifications about what i've been involved in i hadn't really completely owned that i've been involved in something very harmful harmful and um so no it wasn't a relief uh it wasn't until later on that i actually got to prison and began turning my life around that that i that it did become a relief and I've been incredibly grateful ever since. So the, from the transition for you being sentenced and actually arriving to prison, how did you mentally prepare yourself for that? Because like you said, you've clearly got this turmoil still in there, like just for justifying it to yourself. And then you've got like what you now believe in. How did you get yourself mentally prepared to actually go through that? Because as you said, I've seen prison movies. I can't even imagine what it's like, but especially with what your mindset was now, because if you were that drug smuggler, younger version of you, you probably would have handled it differently to this now sort of like Buddhist person that's living this life of a meditation and trying to help the world. Like, How did you actually prepare yourself mentally to go into that environment being the exact opposite of what most people in their worth? That makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, meditation practice is really about working with your mind. It, that's what it is. It's having a practice to really work with your mind, work with your emotions, and and uh, get an intimate relationship with your own mind, your own habitual patterns, and so forth, and develop deeper and deeper awareness. So no doubt my meditation practices and my many years of practice really helped fortify my mind and my ability and my mindset and to be able to approach that experience. I, I was still, you know, completely freaked out about about it. And, uh, um, you know, I went through uh, when I turned myself in, I was supposed to get bail, but I didn't. They didn't give me bail. So that was, I never got a chance to, you know, clean up uh, anything in my life. I just, you know, turned myself in and boom, I was in jail and I was in in this hellhole of a county jail for seven months going through trial and sentencing, which was really a dark period. And as soon as I got locked up, it just hit me like, you know, a ton of, you know, I just hit this wall of of what I'd done to my son, who was nine years old at the time, what I'd done to myself, what I'd done to him, what I'd done to his mother, what I'd I'd let down my teacher, my family, my community. Uh, but especially I was devastated that my son, who was nine years old, was now going to essentially grow up without a father. And so, you know, I was going through this whole kind of dark night of the soul experience of deep remorse and and also a lot of fear. In the county jail, I couldn't sleep. It was it was a completely crazy place. I was in this concrete and steel tank 
with no windows, just a little, uh, you know, a slot in the door where they put the meal trays through and uh, just completely in, in same place of violence and noise, constant chaos and noise, 24 hours a day. And I couldn't sleep. And I was practicing meditation very intensely, but I was, you know, somewhere between meditation and psychosis, you know, it just, I, I was, couldn't sleep and, and very rarely slept. And in all this fear, I was having nightmares about prison. And, you know, so that was a really rough period. But once I got sentenced, and of course, that was devastating when the, when the judge pronounced the sentence of 30 years, no parole, my knees actually buckled, my, my lawyer held me up, I was facing anywhere from 10 to life. Yeah. I knew that. And the night before I hadn't slept at all. And uh, they actually had me in, in uh, uh, I they had me on suicide watch in a special cell. I wasn't suicidal. I was, I was very anxious, but I wasn't suicidal at all. But, but, I, but I was in that cell with the lights on and I couldn't sleep. And I remember not long before dawn, I, I stood up on this uh, stainless steel uh, toilet sink thing that's built into the cell. And I stood up on there to get to a window that was high up, a little small window, just to look out at the night sky. And I could see the stars and, and, and something just came over me and I got back down and sat back on the bunk and, and I was just flooded with this feeling and this sort of peace and confidence. And I just made it a real, it was a, it was a decision that kind of happened in me uh, to never give up. And I wasn't going to give up on myself. I wasn't going to give up on my son. I wasn't going to give up on life. I wasn't going to give up on my practice and path. So I just got the surety that I, I would not give up no matter what. And then the next, that morning, I was sentenced to 30 years, no parole. And that was absolutely devastating. And then really clear, I was 35. So the paper the next morning said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. And so I figured, you know, my life as I knew it was over, I'd pretty much torched my life. And my son's life was going to be terribly impacted growing up without a father. And so I was absolutely devastated. And then when I was transferred to the federal prison where I did my time, which was somewhat of a journey. They transfer you from one prison to another to another, and you finally get to where you're going. And and uh, uh, it's a very intense thing. It's kind of like right out of the movies. You're being transferred by U.S. Marshals, and they have shotguns all the, all the time, and you're in belly chains and handcuffs, and, you know, be marched on and off of planes and buses. And, and uh, it's quite an experience. But when I finally got to the federal prison, it was actually a relief because it was a big, huge place. It had 1,300 prisoners, 1,000 patients, 600 medical, 400 psychiatric, and then 300 regular inmates there called the work cadre to help run the place, the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. So this is the maximum security federal prison hospital, and it's in southwest Missouri, and my case was in St. Louis, Missouri. So uh, it was just, you know, I kind of got lucky to go there. I actually thought I'd be sent to Leavenworth, which is a maximum security penitentiary in Kansas, infamous, really dark place, um, because of the length of my sentence. But I was completely, I had no violence in my background. So I think because of that, they sent me to this U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. And I did my time there. And when I got there, you know, there's 10 buildings in the complex. And they're all connected by these tunnels that are half underground and half above ground. So they have windows to get light in. But so you can go amongst all the different buildings while they were having to go outside. And so I was walking around sales place and and you know, I got a job at, in the school, teaching school. I had a master's degree, so I went there and, you know, they, they hired me as a, uh, to be a, a tutor, a school teacher. And that was my day job for 14 years, helping people learn to read, get their GED, study for college courses, correspondence courses, things like that. And, um, you know, there was a workout area and there was a yard. You could go outside and walk. So it was a big space. 
but also it was just a place. I remember, never forget the first day I was walking the halls there and uh, I'm seeing men who were blind being helped down the hall. I'm seeing men paraplegics and quadriplegics being wheeled about in wheelchairs, men just completely emaciated from AIDS and cancer. I'm seeing men coming out of the psych ward doing the, the hell at all or Thorazine two-step or out in the yard kind of talking to trees and stuff, you know, in many cases grossly over-medicated and they're continually changing their medications. It was sort of like a Fellini movie of suffering. And the good thing about that was that when I arrived there, as you can imagine, I was really wrapped up in the drama of my own situation, having been, mm. just been sentenced to 30 years with no parole, thinking my life was pretty much over. And uh, I was just really wrapped up in that drama of my own pain and confusion and, and anxiety and fear and all the rest of it. And uh, But when I hit this world of tremendous suffering, it just shook me out of that. And I woke up to the fact that here I was in this world of tremendous suffering, and I was just naturally then the natural impulse, how can I serve here? Uh, and that was really based on the influence of, I came from a good family despite problems of alcoholism, people with good values, but also my spiritual teacher, who was someone who, as far as I could tell, just 24 seven worked for the benefit of humanity. And, and so with that influence, you know, here I am in this place of suffering. Okay, what can I do? How can I show up and serve here? And I spent the next 14 years really trying to serve in any way I could in that place of tremendous suffering. Did you, did it become very, very apparent in that moment? that you were there for a reason, like the universe had led you there for a reason, for a purpose. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't really have that sense at the time. Um, upon reflection, it kind of feels that way. And, and anyway, you know, some people say there are no accidents, you know, and, and I do believe life is purposeful. Um, you know, it is kind of ironic, especially given the nature of my teacher. My teacher is a renowned Tibetan meditation master and yoga and of kind of the crazy wisdom, you know, deep inner. And, you know, they operate on all kinds of planes and of dimensions of reality. And, you know, they, they're about waking people up, whatever it takes. So, mm. you know, it's like he gave me all this input and then he drops me in a pretty <laughs> federal prison and says, okay, that, that'll probably work for you, you know? Love so that. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I got, he didn't get me there. I got myself there, but nonetheless, it's just the way things play out. Um, um, and so, and I was also, I was really just um, driven and fueled by this deep remorse around what I'd done to my son. And uh, I just, I, I was just on fire with the, the, the need to create some legacy for him other than just his father went to prison or even died in prison because I had no surety I'd survive my time there. Men were dying there of every illness imaginable. Men died of violence there as well. And, you know, I had no surety that I would survive this time. And, and, I, and I wanted to leave him a better legacy. So I became really committed uh, to, you know, what could I do with my life there that would be meaningful and, and leave a better legacy for him. And I knew one of the relations I, realizations I did have early on was whatever I would be able to do or accomplish or how, however I'd be able to contribute or serve there would come out of my practice. It would mm -hmm. really be grounded. It wouldn't be grounded in ideas. It would be my practice. So I just really focused on practicing hours a day. Uh, you know, I had a full day. I was working a nine-to-five job and then uh, yeah, very got very involved in my own 12-step recovery process around my own addiction and alcohol issues and very involved in that. Then I was getting in shape and working out. So I led a very disciplined life and but I got up very early in the morning. I was only sleeping like four or five hours a night by design, you know, and uh, somehow I was able to do it back then. I couldn't do it now. But but, you know, I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and start practicing meditation before uh, breakfast and then before work. And then at, late at night, I'd be studying three hours and then practicing a couple hours more late into the night. 
And uh, so I was just practicing like my hair was on fire, just really fueled with this tremendous, you know, also, you know, deep regret over what I'd done to my son, also deep longing for my teacher and deep regrets there. And so anyhow, I was, I was just fueled with that passion for practice. And, and so, you know, then things just started unfolding. I was able to get a meditation group started in the chapel, which I then, you know, facilitated for, for 14 years. We eventually had two sessions a week. Uh, I was able with another prisoner to start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world that we know of. And we got outside people to come in and train us to be hospice volunteers. And we started taking care of the men who were dying there. I arrived there in the height of, or really the beginning of the height of the AIDS epidemic in 1985. And all the AIDS patients were being sent to this federal prison hospital from the maximum security federal penitentiaries and dying in horrific conditions, really under criminal neglect, in my view, at that time. And this was before the Proteus inhibitors. So they got every opportunity to confection and imaginable and tremendous suffering. And so that was a big part of my life. I spent most of my meal breaks and a lot of my evenings and weekend time up in the hospital caring for these men who were dying. And we would be assigned to particular patients and we'd stay with them throughout their whole dying process. A few got released on early medical releases, but most died there. And I was with, I, I probably worked with over 40 patients over the 11 years of that program. I We started at about three years into my time. And then so for the remaining 11 years, I was doing that work. And I probably worked with about 40 patients who all became like close, close friends, family members. And I was with more than half of them at the moment of their death. So that was profoundly transformative uh, work and service. It completely it completely changed me, both the confrontation with one's own mortality and and the and the ability to like set one's own needs aside to really be there for somebody else. And and you know, that's just one of the most transformative things one can do. Can I, can so, I talk to you about that? Sorry, because that's that's a because because death for me is something that comes to us all. And in the Western culture, it's something we don't talk about. How did you handle that? Like you, with your practice, yeah. like because you've got this person that's dying. And obviously, I know um, Buddhism has its its views on death, and we don't really die and all that sort of stuff. But how did you personally deal with that grief? Because there's a lot of people listening to this that yeah. well, everyone's going to suffer with grief at some point in their life. So what I want to do here is just unpick this a little bit because this is gold. I don't think I'm ever going to talk to anybody that's um, that's better uh, equipped to discuss this topic. Um, so, what advice would you give to someone actually dealing and having to 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 face? the death of a loved one or a close friend, as it were. Yeah. Well, first of all, Buddhism doesn't say we don't really die. Buddhism is oh. very clear that we do die. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but yeah. And there is a notion of rebirth, but it's not like, you know, Fleet Mall getting reborn. It's some subtle essence of consciousness of mind or something, you know. So it's like um, there is a sense of continuity of being, uh, but death happens. And actually, it's a very important part of our practice to be in close relationship with death. Mm -hmm. In fact, very often in the training of Tibetan meditation masters, traditionally back in Tibet, they would go spend a lot of time with the dying and care for the dying as part of their training. So our really being in close relationship with the reality of our own eventual death and with death altogether is a very important part of our practice and training. And, you know, yet, you know, grief and loss is one of the, the biggest human challenges. And I've experienced a lot of it in my life. My teacher died about two years into my sentence. It was a huge loss for me. My um, father died five months before I got out. My mother died five months after I got out. The woman who'd been my off and on girlfriend before prison, who became my best friend during my prison years, we weren't, we didn't, she went on with her life. I wanted her to go on with her life and she was smart enough to go on with her life, but we became very close friends. 
and she died a year after I got out of prison. Uh, so I've had a lot of loss in my life. Uh, the, my uh, a- after a, a couple of years after that, I I found this amazing woman who I was in partnership with, essentially married. We would have eventually got married. We were together seven years altogether. She died of cancer in two thousand and eight. Um, and last year I lost my son. Oh. And um, he was. Uh, I'm very grateful that my, despite everything I put him through, you know, with going to prison and and him growing up mostly down in Peru with his mom. Uh, but then coming back when I got out and, and he's back and forth his whole, whole life really. And during the 22 years I've been out, he was back and forth a lot, Peru in the U S but, but lived around me a lot. And we spent a lot of time together, very close, but um, I lost him last year, just a little over a year ago. I think it's complications of, of epilepsy, he had um, one time down in Peru, he was, uh, I think he was in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, in a in a club late at night, in the, right in the plaza of Cusco, Peru, this big tourist center. Um, and uh, he got beaten nearly to death and left for dead. And uh, fortunately his friends found him, got into a hospital. I got down there the next day, he was in a coma for 10 days. Uh, he came out of that eventually and was completely crazy with, frontal lobe head injury, you know, inappropriate, belligerent, out of control, and was like that for six or seven months while my partner then at that time, Denise, was on hospice care. So this is 2008. My my partner, my wife, is for all practical purposes, dying, and, and my son's crazy. And uh, eventually I got my son to a friend of mine's ashram because I had him through various high-end, you know, uh, clinics that were supposed to be able to help and they weren't helping him at all. So we got him to this ashram and, and they were, you know, they didn't even know if they could handle him because he was really belligerent and out of control. And, but eventually he, he just shifted over a period of a couple of weeks. And this was before my partner Denise died and he was back to normal, relatively back to normal. I think the blood finally absorbed in his brain and the circuits hooked back up and it was a long emotional recovery from that, but, but he was basically himself again. And, but then about six years later, he started having seizures due to the scar tissue in his frontal lobes. And uh, that was in 2015, maybe. And so uh, a little over a year ago, down in Peru, his mom found him one morning. He was already gone. We think it was the result of a seizure. He'd wake up early in the morning, often with seizures. And they, they you don't usually die of a seizure, but they can trigger a, a heart attack or a respiratory failure of some kind. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I've been very intimate with death and loss in my life. And you know, all my hospice patients, most of them I became very close to, and I can see them all right now. I mean, they, they just all feel very, very, very close to me still. Mm. How, how'd, you, how'd, you deal, how'd you deal with that? So, you know, I think it's important to understand. I mean, there's no easy way to deal with cross and leap uh, with, I'm um, sorry, with grief and loss. We just have to go through it. You know, you, you just really have to go through it. And a- efforts to avoid it are really... Um, it's difficult to avoid, but if we're sexual and avoiding it, it's to our own detriment because we're just stuffing it. It's going to create all kinds of other problems in our life. So we really just need to open to the process of grief and loss and go through it. And I think it's helpful to understand that our self-structure, who we, how we operate in the world, who we think we are, our sense of self and beingness, isn't this skin encapsulated being here. Our self-structure exists within the nested um connections of our relationships, especially our close relationships. So when we lose someone, we're losing part of ourselves. 
And 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 that's why grief is so painful and so difficult in it. And it takes a while for our sense of self and our self structure to reweave itself, right? And and so that's the process that's going on. And I think if we understand that, that can be helpful. But you know, when my partner Denise died in two thousand and eight, it really took me down. Um, well, even before that, when when Karen, my best friend during my prison years, who'd been my girlfriend previously. When she died, I went into a deep depression for six months. First time I'd ever been really depressed in my life. I was on the edge. You know, I could see depression was right over there the whole time I was in prison. I just made a commitment not to go there. Um, and I was able not to do that. But it felt like there was this black hole of abyss right over there that I could easily slip into. But when Karen died, I slipped into this. And it was like physical. Like I could barely get out of the bed in the morning. And I had to keep working. But it would take me two hours to get dressed. It was like I was moving through mud or something, Right. And it lasted about six months and then just lifted one day, the physical sense of the depression lifted. But with Denise, it was more like I was just in utter agony. I just completely fell apart. I didn't know how to live. We were so bonded. I just didn't know how to live without her. And, and you know, she was an amazing being, an amazing deep Buddhist practitioner. And the three years of her cancer journey was very powerful and her death was very powerful. But once she was gone, there I was just, you know, and I just was lost and, and I, I was clear that I wanted to stay open to the grieving and not resist the grieving. And I kind of, but I think I just kind of let it overwhelm me. And uh, and so this time when my son died, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to open to the grief. I'm going to stay with the grief, but I'm going to practice. I'm going to use all my practices. I'm going to, you know, work with my mind and my heart and my emotions and and keep myself resilient. And I'm going to face this and go through it, but I'm going to practice with it. I'm not just going to let it, you know, overwhelm me and knock me down completely and and so that's you know what i did i very in our tibetan buddhist tradition we um you know as i say uh death is real uh but there is some essence that goes on and we have a lot of practices that are oriented towards supporting a being moving through the transitions into their next life and uh so i was practicing very intensely every day for robert during the traditionally in the first 49 days is that intermediate state from one life to the next so I was doing intensive practice, and so was my wife, Sophie, and we were doing that for Robert every day, very intensively. And I practiced like that very intensely, really, for the first, really, the first 108 days, really. And, uh, and you know, I, but early on, I got a strong, palpable sense, even when Sophie and I did this particular uh, kind of memorial transitional practice for him, like three days probably even two days after he died. We did a more formal one that a lot of people joined in on about three or four days after he died. But Sophie and I did a more private ceremony the first time. And we did this like couple hours long ceremony. And uh, and when we were done, we were both facing this Buddhist altar, right, doing it. And when we we're done, we just kind of looked at each other. And we both had the same thought, the same realization at the same time, which is we both had absolute clarity. He's okay. He's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's, that sense has been abiding all the way through. And his, I have a beautiful photo of him next to where I practice every morning in my meditation room. And whenever I look at it, I just get this deep sense of joy and okayness. And, and so, you know, he's become like a protector for me. And, but that's been hard work. You know, I mean, I really, really worked at using everything I've learned, all the body, mind disciplines and practices I've learned over the last 50 years in working with that grief. And um, so but it's 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 not and it's not that I'm done, you know, it comes up in flashes. And there's times when when I get hit with this, this sense of absolute void and meaninglessness about my son being gone. But 
you know, but then I can kind of open my heart and rouse my heart and bring bring my love for him and his love for me to mind. And, you know, and then I, it kind of reestablishes a sense of well-being. So I don't know how helpful that is to anybody, oh. but it's a difficult journey. And somehow we have to find ways to embrace it. And if we need support, we need to get the support of ministers and and counselors and friends and family members, because it's really not a journey we should do alone either. And and if I hadn't had Sophie, Sophie with me, my wife, I don't know how I would have gone through my son's uh, uh, death if I'd been alone. I, it, I, I, I don't know. So, uh, on, on, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing that, because that was nowhere on our show notes at all you've that that was something that you were not expected to talk about uh also i had absolutely no idea that your son had passed away and that really genuinely shocked me because speaking in your hearing you speak in your book and how highly you speak of your son and how all the stuff before you went to prison about how you wanted to leave this legacy for him um to find that out is genuinely like yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry for your loss. And thank you ever so much for sharing that because you have helped a lot of people with that right there. Uh, it's one of the, the things that with my clients that I work with, grief is something I know nothing about. I, I, I'm very grateful in my life at this moment. I've not had anyone close to me um, uh, um, pass away. So to have someone like yourself speak on it like that, um, you've already helped me ahead of time. So this is going to be something I'm going to listen back to. Uh, so I'll say thank you very much for that. Uh, and also, uh, I didn't mean that people don't physically die. I meant I meant from a spiritual point of view. So thank you for clearing that up because that's you're completely 100% correct. And uh, that's the hardest part for people when that physical person goes. And you've genuinely taken me back there. I was not expecting that at all. So thank you for sharing that. Um, on a lighter note, uh, radical responsibility. Um, what is radical responsibility? Because that's what your book is called. And that's essentially um, what you discovered when you're in prison. So what actually is radical responsibility and how can people use that in their life to actually help them move forward? Yeah, I generally describe radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life. And the most important distinction in this model is that between ownership and blame. Radical responsibility has absolutely nothing to do with blame. Most of us have been enculturated into thinking when anything happens, somebody's got to take the blame, right? And so if I don't find someone else to blame, I'm going to have to take the blame myself. And we've all experienced enough blame and shame in our lives. We don't want any more of that. So we just instinctually deflect blame where we're constantly looking. Anything happens, we're immediately trying to blame somebody. I have the same propensity to myself still. And we don't need to feel bad about that because we all have these tender, vulnerable hearts and we've all been wounded. And, you know, so we're naturally deflecting that sense of blame and shame away. But the problem is in doing so, we give away our power. Because when we blame others for what's happening in our own lives, and, and when we attribute the cause of suffering we're experiencing or pain or frustration, anger, and feelings to causes outside of ourselves, people or situations, we're basically putting those people or situations in charge of our internal state. And we're also not focusing our energy where it can really do the most good, which is with ourselves, right? Mm. So we talk about embracing 100% ownership with circumstances that we can see we had something to do with, but also with circumstances we can't see we had anything to do with. And, you know, the first is to look, to get as honest as we can and see, you know, is there any way that I kind of contributed to this or even caused it? Or is there some way I'm unconsciously setting myself up based on some childhood conditioning or self-sabotage patterns or just early life scripts are called sometimes? Am I setting myself up to be like taken advantage of in some way or something? 
Or am I not standing up for myself? Am I not doing my due diligence or having the difficult conversations I need to have? Do I not have good boundaries? Did I just allow it by not being aware? Am I not paying attention? Maybe maybe I could have seen it coming. Maybe I did see it coming, right? Often we're, we're not listening to that little voice in the back of our head that's saying this is not a good idea, right? So we look, is there anything here I can own? And that's very important, but we're not looking to own things for the purpose of blame. Absolutely not. This all has to happen in a context of tremendous self-compassion and continually cultivating greater and greater self-love, self-compassion, and a really fundamentally friendly friendship relation, ally relationship with ourselves and our own being. But we are looking at where is our part in things so we can learn. Because when we see that clearly, we can do something different next time. If I see that how I got to a situation I don't like is through these steps, next time I can take different steps. Or, you know, if I turned left instead of right back there, I would have gotten a different result. So next time I know I will turn left instead of right. Right. So it's for the purpose of learning. And then there are those circumstances that maybe we can't see we had absolutely anything to do with. And everyone would agree. It just seemed like it fell out of the sky, landed on our head or in our lap. Right. But there it is. It's in our life now. And it may be incredibly unjust and, and horrible. And, and, you know, and we may rightly feel victimized by it. And we may need a lot of affirmation. We may need a lot of support. But at some point, the most salient question is, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to let it take me down? Or am I going to find the most creative way I can respond to this to move forward, which may include seeking support and validation from others. It may include seeking justice in some cases, but doing that from an empowered place of, of saying, okay, this is part of my life now. I don't know why. And it's not like I'm blaming myself, but it is part of my life. And so it's up to me what I'm going to do with it. From that place of ownership, seeking justice, seeking support is very different than we do from the purely victim mindset, right? Mm. So we're embrace it's really radical responsibility could easily be called radical self-empowerment. Mm. It's putting our energy the only place it can do any good, really. Because again, when I'm convinced that um, you know, my anger, frustration, unhappiness, hurt, whatever it is that might be going on is caused by others, I'm really giving my power away to them. I'm putting them in charge of my own internal state because I can't control other people. Right? I can't control you. I can't control anybody. We know we can't control it. We try, right? We try to control our spouses and boyfriends and parents and children and friends, but it's a futile effort because people are uncontrollable. And how do we know that? Because we're uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. We know we are. We know we're always going to find some way to get our way. You know, we're, we're endlessly creative in getting our own needs met. So, you know, if people get nothing else from this. Let go of trying to control the people in your life. You'll be happier and they'll be happier. Right? But we can't because we can't control other people. We need to focus our energy on that where we do have some influence. And that's hard enough, but with ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really landed on this when I was in prison because I found myself in this incredibly dark environment full of anger and negativity. All my fellow prisoners had more, mostly had victim stories going on and were armoring up with anger and bitterness, and they felt victimized and are protecting themselves with their own victim stories and their anger and their bitterness, And which is sad because that keeps you from contacting the genuine remorse and regret that is really the pathway to transformation. And I was so lucky that I came in with a lot of training and a lot of skills. And I recognize that's not, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get, come out of prison someday if I managed to survive angry and bitter. And I didn't even want to live that way when I was in prison. So I realized that I had to really proactively take ownership for having got myself there, for what I was going to do with my time there, and for whatever possibilities I might have if I managed to survive prison after prison. And so I just realized I had to, I had to take radical ownership for all of that. 
And through that, I was able to do a lot of good in prison. I was able to start two national uh, nonprofits and catalyze two national movements. I was able to start all kinds of programs there in the prison. And these are things you're not supposed to be able to do as a prisoner. If I'd gone to somebody in the administration and said, I want to start this now, but they would have said, you're crazy. You can't do that. Prisoners can't do that. You know, anytime you went to anybody in the administration or anyone there in the prison and said, could we try this? The answer was always no. Mm. And they'd say, well, we used to have that, but some inmate abused it. And we don't do that anymore. They always had a story. And the answer was always no. And they have absolute power. You try to buck the system there, you're in four-point restraints on a concrete bunk back in the site ward being hosed down at night, pumped full halidol and thorazine, literally. So resistance is absolutely futile. It's a maximum security institution, which sociologists call a total institution, which is like a totalitarian state. So when you're in, a, in, in, in an environment where you are absolutely powerless and you want to do good, how, how do you accomplish anything? Well, you have to get out of that sense of blame and you have to take complete ownership for your own creative ability to find some way to navigate that situation. And then what I found was by realizing based on my Buddhist practice and teachings and philosophy and beliefs that all beings have basic goodness. And that if I just related with people honestly and respectfully and kindly and consistently, that eventually I'd find a way to get in touch with their basic goodness and good things would happen. Mm. And in that way, I was able to start all these programs and do a lot of amazing things during those 14 years, as well as focus on transforming myself. So it all came from this place of ownership. And, uh, and you know, that's where the model arose from. And that's what guides my life today. I absolutely love that. And uh, I love the fact that you say they were all born with basic goodness. Uh, again, a lot of people, uh, again, you mentioned in your book that like the main sort of narrative in society is that people are basically evil, but they're not. They're inherently good. Um, something that you, you spoke about here, which I think is absolutely profound, saying that this victim story people use for protection, I think that is very, very true. I think a lot of people, um, especially nowadays with what's going on in society nowadays, they lack a lot of self-love and they use their victim story, as you said, for protection. So how does the radical responsibility model that you teach uh, in the book, how does that help people move from this victim mindset into an empowering one? What does that look like? Because it's, again, people will hear this and they'll get very defensive about it. So how, yeah, do you try, how, how do you break down those barriers and those walls and help people yeah. to become empowered? Well, I do some very deep, um, well, I haven't been during the pandemic, but there, there's, a, um, there's a, a really powerful training that I've been leading for 25 years that embraces a lot of the radical responsibility model within it. And uh, it's a very intense old school kind of uh, transformational training. And in that training, sometimes when people are really locked into their, you know, victim mindset or their view, or they're just solidified around this and, you know, there's in total resistance and, you know, to, you know, you know, and I'll just say, okay, great. I'm not gonna argue with you. How's that working for you? <laughs> you know, and that usually stops their minds a little bit, but I want to be clear. People are victimized in life. And, you know, when we talk about radical responsibility, this is not about children. Children deserve to be protected and need to be protected. And, and it's tragic, you know, we, none of us come through childhood unscathed. We've all experienced stuff. And tragically, many children experience, you know, terrible kinds of neglect and abuse and trauma. And uh, sadly and tragically, a lot of that is still around the fault lines of injustice and racism and poverty and things like that. And so this is all tragic and terrible. And, and this, so this conversation is not about children, it's about adults, but horrible things happen to adults as well. And, and some of that happens around the fault lines of injustice as well. So, you know, this isn't about 
being in any way dismissive of the terrible things that happen to people or or being in denial that people are victimized. It's really what is going to help any one of us move forward in our life, hmm. right? What's going to help us move forward in our life? And so, again, this has to be grounded in, in really a context of tremendous self-compassion and kindness for ourselves, because otherwise, you know, this idea of radical responsibility, people are just kind of misinterpreted as radical blame, blaming myself, which is not what it is. It has absolutely nothing to do with blaming myself, it has absolutely nothing to do with blaming others, obviously, and absolutely nothing to do with blaming victims, not one iota. It's simply understanding our psychology, right, mm. and understanding what it takes to move forward in our life. One of the, uh, there's a chapter in a book, there's a couple of chapters actually on on a psychological distinction I use in this model, which I, has been life-changing for just millions of people. And everywhere I go, people find it so helpful. Stephen Cartman's drama triangle mm-hmm. and understanding the, tri- the this triangulation of toxic drama that plays out between our own ears, it plays out in families in destructive ways, leads to divorce and and all kinds of problems and damage on children. And it undermines communities and organizations and company and plays out on the world stage as endless uh, war and conflict and immigration crises and, and you know, all the craziness we see in the world. It's all grounded in this triangulation of the victim mindset, the persecutor mindset, and the rescuer mindset. And, you know, this is a classic melodrama, the hero, the villain, and the victim. Mm-hmm. But Cartman languaged it in a way to see that these are mindsets that we all gravitate through. Right. And, you know, they're all attempts to gain power. They're kind of shadow attempts to gain power. They're all driven by the victim mindset. Like, why do I go into my controlling, dominating, persecuting behaviors? Because I'm trying to gain power and control. Why? Because I feel powerless. Why do I get into rescuing? Now, what we mean by rescuing there is not like when people need to be rescued from a mining accident or an avalanche. We're talking about the psychological rescuer. We're almost sensibly helping people, but I'm doing it from up here. Don't forget who's the victim and who's the rescuer here, right? And I'm doing it because I need to be up here. I need to be in that top position, right? So I'm getting my needs met. I'm feeling powerful and strong by being the fixer, the savior, the rescuer. And when I try to help people in that way, it's actually not helpful. Or to the end, maybe none of us are pure rescuers, but very few of us are pure helpers either. So to the extent that my natural instincts to be helpful are conflated with that rescuer mindset, my helping is less helpful because it disempowers others. It enables them to stay in a victim mindset. It's actually demeaning in many cases. Mm. And there's a lot of, you know, well-intended work that goes on out there in the world. I've been an activist and involved in social justice work my entire life through prison and post-prison. And, but I have a lot of colleagues out in the world that, you know, they kind of don't get this and they're trying to save the world, but they're doing it from their own victim mindset and from this rescue mindset. And they're really reinforcing this culture of, of, you know, how do you get power? You get power by claiming some victim identity. And it's all under bear. If it worked, I'd be all for it. Mm. If it was transformational and it took people's lives for it, I would be all for it. But, but I actually think, you know, when we're into that rescuer mindset, we're actually, we're saying to somebody else, you know, you can't handle your life. You know, you can't do it. I can, you can do it if I help you, but you can't do it. Now, people do fall apart and we may be helping somebody who's really, you know, kind of collapsed. But we need instead of seeing them as broken, we need to see them as whole and mm-hmm. hold a space for them to do their own work, to find their way back to their own wholeness and go beyond us. Right. Mm-hmm. That's very different than when I'm the fixer and I'm going to save somebody, this poor person, you know, who can't help themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's a mindset thing. These are mindsets we but once that triangle forms, you know, let, let's say I'm, I'm feeling like I've been victimized and I'm, you know, 
And I, oh, that's my persecutor. And what do I do? Do I go deal with that? No, I go find somebody to rescue me. And, you know, this, this just starts to spin. It forms a toxic hole of negativity. And, you know, we see this everywhere. Once you start looking for the drama triangle, you see it, turn on the news, it's everywhere. Go to, mm. go to work, it's everywhere. Go home, you're going to find it. I mean, it's just everywhere in life and it creates endless suffering. And we need to have a somewhat of a sense of humor perspective because it is kind of this human dynamic and it is at the heart of all our great movies and novels and so forth. But we don't need to live in the midst of toxic drama, right? Mm. And, and it does create huge suffering in life. And really it is the source of human suffering. So when we begin to understand that and we really understand that experientially, then we can learn to not get caught in that triangulation and realize there are other ways when we have been hurt to transform that hurt in ways that are genuinely transforming, bring about real healing and allow us to bring healing to others and don't perpetuate the drama. Don't perpetuate that, that, that victim mindset, that, that sense of acting from that place of power, seeking power from a place of powerlessness. Mm. How do we get off that drama triangle then? So how do we know, because you said that it's like it happens in everyday life and we can be on it at any time. So how do we actually recognize that we are, in this triangle and how do we get ourselves out of it? Like, cause I know that yeah. your work is very centered in, in mindfulness and awareness. So how do we actually gain that awareness that we're actually caught in this triangle? Well, we need to become very familiar with these mindsets. Now, the victim mindset is pretty easy. If I'm upset, I'm probably, you know, either already caught in the drama triangle or about to be right. I'm unhappy about something, right? That's the victim mindset. You know, I want to normalize the victim mindset. Uh, and it's not about, these are not names we're calling people. We're not calling people victims, persecutors, and rescuers. These are psychological positions, mindsets that we get caught in, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we mean by the victim mindset is anytime I'm even mildly unhappy, dissatisfied, frustrated, or whatever, and I assume the causation to be someone or something outside myself. And of course, we all do that all the time, right? We assume our feelings are caused by other people, but actually our feelings arise following the experience or the perception of our needs being met or not. Mm -hmm. Our basic human needs that we all have, food, warmth, shelter, love, belonging, connection, relationship, autonomy, self-agency, respect, creative expression, we all have the same needs. And when I perceive my needs are being met, how do I feel? Well, I have all the warm and fuzzy emotions, right? You know, happiness, joy, gladness, contentment, peace. But if I perceive my needs are not being met or they're blocked or threatened in some way, then I start to have all the challenging emotions of, you know, frustration, fear, anxiety, jealousy, anger, you know, even hatred and, and, and envy and things like that all arise out of my perception that my needs are not being met or blocked in some way. So now you can see there's this whole internal landscape between outside stimuli and the actual emotions. And you notice I was saying perception. Are my perceptions always accurate? No. My perceptions are at best a limited read of a limited set of the available data. We zero in on very limited sets of data then we start telling ourselves stories because we're meaning-making machines. We start adding assumptions and assumptions. And then, you know, we prove our assumptions because we narrow our vision. We're only seeing what proves our assumption and become conclusion beliefs. And then we're off to the races, right? Mm. So there's this whole internal landscape. So when we want to get off the drama tangle, the first thing is to recognize we're on it. Because very often we're involved in drama. We're blaming you, they, them. We're caught in one of these mindsets or we're dominating or we're rescuing. Or we're, we're just caught in the drama. We don't even recognize it. So we have to learn to recognize it. It's easier to learn to recognize when I'm in the victim mindset because I'm upset. Mm. I need to learn what's my style of the persecutor mindset. What's my style of trying to dominate and control, uh, criticize, judge, you know, uh, much less be abusive or so forth and or be aggressive. And then what's my style of being a rescuer, right? 
you know, like, oh, if I don't go to work today, that place will fall apart. They couldn't run that place with, with you know, if their life depended, if I'm not there or, you know, I don't know, everybody comes to me with their problems. I'm not sure I must be a really good listener or whatever it is. Right. You know, we have mm-hmm. to learn what's my style, you know, because when we're in these mindsets, we have a certain posture, we have a vocal tone, we have certain types of language we use. So we need to get really curious. And I need to, I, I know my own style of rescuing. I know my own style of rescuing. I know my own victim mindset. And so when it comes up, I can recognize, ah, there goes, there I go doing the persecutor thing. There I go doing the rescuer thing. And the minute I recognize that, I stop. So the first, the first thing is recognize. The second thing is to stop and take space, take a breath, count to 10, do some deep breathing, learn some state shifting tools like straw breathing, box breathing, four, seven, eight breathing, things that'll shift our autonomic nervous system from an emotional trigger back down to a more regulated state. And then in a more regulated state, we say the next step is we use our voice, not verbally, because that might be the worst thing to do in that moment. But internally, we use it to own our feelings. Like, what's going on with me? Wow. Well, I'm angry. I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. There's usually a whole ton of feelings going on. And you know, this is the pronoun I. I is the pronoun of ownership. Because usually we're you, they, them, you, you know, that's, you know, we shift from that kind of blaming projective language where we're projecting the causation for our feelings onto someone or something else. And we move into reflective ownership mode with I statements and we own our feelings. And then once we've gotten clear what we're feeling and, you know, you know, I may think my anger has something to do with somebody's doing out there, but it's my anger. And when I'm feeling anger, it's the same anger I felt every time I've been angry my whole life going all the way back into my childhood. And I'm reliving all those angers. So it's not to say there aren't things going on in the world to be angry about. Certainly there are. And being able to untangle our own personal anger from, you know, justified anger. But even when we have justified anger, we can get carried away with it and be unskillful and not really help very much. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, there is justified anger about things that are playing out in the world. But then how do you work with that without getting just caught in your own stuff again? Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to reflect, you have to get untriggered, you have to get out of the reptilian brain and use state shifting tools and get reflective. And so you own your own feelings. And then you look at the needs. All right, what needs am I experiencing? What am I perceiving as not being met? Well, I perceive my need for justice, fairness, uh, inclusion, my need for certainty, my need for order, my need for trust, my need for all these needs are I'm perceiving they're not being met. Well, is that really true? Well, of course it's true. Well, is it really true? Well, I think it's true because, oh, that's an assumption. Okay, is that really true? You know, and by doing that kind of exploration, we we may eventually get to realize we've completely misperceived situations, or we just get back into a place of not knowing where we can actually take a fresh look at what's really going on. Or maybe we do get clear that there are certain needs in a situation that really aren't being met or are threatened or challenged in some way. Well, then we can reflect, okay, well, is it that person's obligation to meet my need? Is it the world's obligation to meet my need? Are there other ways I can get my needs met, right? So all this takes me way off the drama triangle into a reflective state. And at some point, sometimes I can come back to someone and I'm untriggered enough and reflective enough that I can have a conversation with them at the level of needs and maybe talk about how could we find a win-win way to do something different in the office at work or make this, you know, and, but I'm not blaming them because the minute I blame them one iota, they're going to go on the defensive and we're off, we're back in the drama. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and then sometimes the only way out the drama trying is to make a boundary. Sometimes I just have to say, no, that doesn't work for me. You know, this is this is not going anywhere. Let's let's come back to this next week. Or if you're going to use that kind of language, you know, that I, we just got to stop here. 
or, you know, you speak to me that way again, I'm, I'm going to contact HR or you touch me like that. I'm going to call the police. So if you don't leave my house right now, I'm calling the. I mean, sometimes we have to make boundaries with people. And if we can make boundaries with a little drama and little enmity, they actually work a lot better. You know, if we're reflective enough that we can very dispassionately just say no, then then it doesn't give much for the other person to chew on. Right. People. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it's really helpful to have good boundaries to begin with. You know, when we have good internal boundaries, people sense that. And the people who are looking to create drama, they go they go somewhere else. They go looking for an easy mark. And what are dramas? I mean, boundaries. Boundaries are knowing when to say yes and when to say no to ourselves and others. And and hopefully we get wiser and wiser about discerning that over our lifespan. So if I can't say no to others, I'm a doormat. You know, if I'm, yeah. I'm constantly people pleasing, saying yes to everything, I'm going to be overwhelmed. I'm going to be a doormat. Right. And if I can't say yes to others, no relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So it's knowing when to say yes and when to say no. If I can't say no to myself, am I going to accomplish anything in life? If I can't delay immediate gratification to work on things that take more effort, no, I won't be able to accomplish much. If I can't say yes to myself, am I going to have any joy in life? No. So again, it's knowing when to say yes and when to say no. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us don't have good boundaries because our parents didn't model good boundaries to us. So our parents were too neglectful or too invasive or all con- the whole constellation of reasons why we might not have good boundaries. And so as adults, we got to recognize, you know, I have boundary issues. I need to work on it. Maybe I need to get in counseling or, you know, if I'm really not good at saying no, I'm really afraid to say no to others. Just try it. Just say no. The world won't end, mm. you know, mm. or if I have really trouble saying yes, try saying yes. You'll see the world doesn't end. Right. So, you know, but maybe we need some counseling or coaching support around that. There's a whole world of life coaching today where we can get support from people. Right. So if we know we have boundary issues and insufficient boundaries, we need to work on that. And nobody can do that but us. Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody can do it but us. Right. And I'll give you one example that maybe will help people because there's a tremendous amount of injustice in the world and people are victimized in terrible ways. And unfortunately, you know, we're all working hard to make it a just a more just world. We want to even the playing field as much as we can. You know, my goal, my aspiration is that, you know, in the world, everyone can have, you know, at least very similar, if not the same opportunities. Mm-hmm. We can never guarantee equal outcomes. You know, that's, you know, it takes tyranny to do that. And even tyranny hasn't worked. It's never worked and it never will work. But what we can try is provide everyone, regardless of, of what color their skin is or, or the zip code they're born into or, or their, that they can have relatively equal opportunities, the same good medical care, the same good schooling, the same opportunities, right? That's what we need to work towards. And we're a long way from that, obviously. So that's, that's what we want to work toward. But I'll give you an example. I, I go into well, prior to the pandemic, I go into prisons a lot. And now I'm I'm going in by Zoom. Actually, I was, I'm amazed that they're actually letting us do some in-prison classes over Zoom. So, but I've gone into tons and tons of prisons around the world. And when I go into prisons, I want these prisoners who are my brothers and sisters. And uh, because I never, you know, I, I got out of prison, but I never really left that world. You know, I, I, very understandable. Some people want to just completely live it, leave it behind, but it's always been part of my life. And these are my brothers and sisters. And so I want them to get two things. I want them to get that I really deeply get and have feel deep pain over the fact that most of them have come from horrific backgrounds and backgrounds of tremendous trauma, neglect, abuse. Many of them have grown up in nothing but chaos, families beset with suffering of alcoholism and addiction. And, and, you know, and many of them were literally programmed to end up in prison. Mm-hmm. literally programmed to end up in prison. And, you know, I get that. 
And I also get that there's a tremendous amount of racial injustice in our sentencing policies, in in how how and how often and who gets arrested, and what people are charged with, uh, what sentences they get. The whole thing, the whole criminal justice system is beset with with racial injustice. And and I want them to get that. I get that. And and it breaks my heart. And it breaks my heart to see anybody locked up. I don't care what they got locked up for. It breaks my heart to see human beings in cages. So and they get that because that's who I am. Mm. The second thing I want them to get is that what they're going to be able to do with their life, their destiny from this moment forward is going to be based on nothing other than the decisions and the choices they're making today, tomorrow and the next day. Mm. That as an adult. Only they can make the choices and the decisions and take the actions that are going to lead to a different future and a different destiny for them. And if they want to get out and change the world, well, get your act together, get out and go change the world and work to change all the injustice. But just sitting there in your prison cell and, you know, doing in a victim mindset is not going to do anything for you or anybody else. Right. As understandable as it is. And if somebody's stuck in that, we need to have tremendous compassion for them. And, you know, this model isn't about going around telling somebody you need to get off your victim mindset. No, this is about us. This model is what I do for myself. You know, I, I teach this model. I put it out there. People can embrace it or not. But I'm not individually going around to somebody and saying you need to get off your victim mindset. Absolutely not. You know, I've, it's being a human being is really the most I mean, it's so incredibly challenging and difficult the journey of being a human being. And it's become more challenging and difficult, I think, than ever before. Mm. It's always been challenging and difficult, but I think it's more challenging and difficult than ever before. So, you know, people are struggling and people get caught in victim mindsets and people get caught in lots of self-created suffering. And and we need to have tremendous compassion for them. It's heartbreaking. And I don't want to get, I don't want to interact with them in a way that encourages them to keep that pattern going. Mm. I'm not in there to tell them what to do either, but I hope my presence, you know, that people just get a whip of maybe some other possibility and they start thinking, maybe I could try it. Maybe, you know, maybe they, and they find their own way out into a different way of thinking, a different way of being. I love that. It's like, uh, so I say to my clients, like they're the hero in their story. I'm just a guide. I'm like the Yoda to their Luke Skywalker. Like I'm there to try and help them be the best version of themselves. Like I'm trying to guide them on the journey. That's essentially what you're doing there. You're being that beacon of hope. Um, I could talk to you all day long and I'm very respectful of your time. Um, You've literally blown me away talking to you. And I, I genuinely mean that. Um, it's not often that while someone's talking to me, I'm completely engrossed in what you're saying. And my mind is just shut off. It's, it's bizarre. I can't describe what I've experienced talking to you. Like normally I'm thinking of next questions to ask to get, I have just been completely engrossed in what you've said. Um, and like, like I said to you earlier on, you, you, you've, you've touched me today. Uh, and you've helped me more than I can actually possibly articulate. And I generally mean that. I talked about it off air, but you generally have helped me more than you know. Um, so one final question I ask all my guests is how can, sorry, what's one bit of advice that you could give someone that's struggling right now? So someone that's listening to this and they are struggling. My advice is buy your book, which we're going to have links to because your book genuinely is incredible. And it's not just a book, it's a course. But apart from that, what bit of take home advice would you give to someone right now that's listening and is struggling? Well, the first thing is just be really kind to yourself and just, you know, realize we all struggle and life is not easy. And there's all kind of complex reasons in your life that have brought you to this moment that are, you know, part part and parcel of why, why you're struggling. Mm. And, you know, that's not an excuse to stay there, but it does give you the self-understanding that, you know, it's not, it's not your fault. It's not any of our fault. Mm. 
you know, this idea of no blame is really about not blaming others, not blaming ourselves. You know, I mean, we could blame our parents, but then we'd have to blame their parents and their parents and their parents. All you know, at some point, it's just useless, right? We all get our share of the human condition, and there's a lot of injustice in the world, a lot of unfairness. But you know, at any, for any one of us, at any point in time, here, here I am, and these are my circumstances, and this is the conditioning I got growing up from my family legacy, and this is what I've learned, this is what I haven't learned, and these are the circumstances I'm dealing with in life. And so, the fundamental question is what can I do? Mm -hmm. Asking myself that question gets me out of any kind of victim mindset, any kind of sense of powerlessness into the world of creativity and solution-based thinking, because there's always a million things we can do. Even taking little small micro steps to change our situation or learn something or shift our attitude or or anything, you know, or the, the way we interact with people. If we're struggling with somebody in our life, there's a thousand ways we can approach anybody. So just you know, first of all, I'd say self-kindness, self-compassion, self-understanding, and then keep asking that question, what can I do? Mm. What, what's the most creative thing I can do right here, right now in this moment to move my life forward in a good way? You are just genuinely unbelievable. That uh, I'm going to, basically the wall behind me, and I feel like I'm going to have to get that put somewhere to remind myself that, what can I do? Because as you said, as you've been talking, um, You've, you've helped me a lot today. Uh, and I really generally mean that. Um, where can people find out more about you? Well, my basic website is fleetmall.com. So they can go there, fleetmall.com. A lot of my courses are available uh, over my HeartMind Institute platform, which is heartmind.co, heartmind.co. And I have my neurosomatic mindfulness course there. And my radical responsibility course will is being revised and it will be there soon. Uh, but I have a number of courses and all of our online summits are there at heartmind.co. Uh, uh, if they want to check out my book, it's radicalresponsibilitybook.com. You can read all the accolades from other best-selling authors and you can get a free chapter. You can download a free chapter from the book there at radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And if people are interested in the prison work, uh, prisonmindfulness.org is all our work with at-risk, incarcerated, and returning youth and adults. And then mindfulpublicsafety.org is our work with public safety professionals, police, correctional officers, and, and first responders. So, uh, yeah, that gives them enough to work with. Perfect. I'll get Mikey to ping them all across the, uh, the bottom of the screen there for you as well, and, and especially yeah. linked to your book. Um, honestly, Dr. Moll, this has been absolutely incredible. And thank you ever so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you today. <laughs>